Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. You know, under the former, under the former Soviet Union, um, of course, to practice any religion and to teach children any religion was considered the greatest crime of them all. And uh, many of my ancestors and many in the Chabad community who lived and operated at that at that time in in under the communist regime uh, were sent to the firing squad or even Mashem protectors or to Siberia or God knows where for the terrible crime of uh, of teaching young children Hira or of seeing to it that Jewish women could go to a mikveh or for arranging kosher shkita or, or things like that. Now, if you did manage, those who did manage to serve, do not be sent to the firing squad and were sent instead to, uh, to some form of communist prison, in addition to being subject to physical torture, they also subject their prisoners to terrible psychological and emotional torture. They really abused them um, mentally. To, to break their spirits, which is what they wanted more than to break their bodies. They wanted to break their souls. So legend has it, I heard this uh, Hasidic story and I just fell in love with it. I heard it so long ago. Legend has it that there's this Hasidic Yid and um, he's in some Soviet gulag. He's, he's in some Soviet prison. And, uh, you know, because he was caught teaching children, teaching Jewish children olive bays or, or fixing a mikvah or something like that. And they're really, they're really trying to, the communists, you know, they're, they're really trying to break him. They really want him to abandon his faith and abandon his God and abandon his people and, and abandon his convictions and abandon his courage. They want him to, you know, they want to turn, they want to turn him into a Soviet puppet. So they're really trying to break him. And uh, they see this guy, he's, you know, he's a Lebedeker, he's a Freilacher, he's happy, he's passionate, he's excited about life, he's, he's, He's got great spunk. And the more he shows them how full of spunk he is, the more they're determined to break him. So one day they're sitting around and they're thinking, how can we get this guy? You know, how can we inject poison into his soul? How can we defile him in the worst of ways? And they think to themselves, you know, these, these, these beasts, these anti-Semites, these, uh, you know, vindictive, cruel human beings. They say to themselves, you know, this Hasidic, this Hasidic Jew, this Chabadnik, He's, he's an intelligent person. What if we appeal to his intelligence? What if we taught him something that would kind of shift his perspective on the world? Um, and he's been rotting away in prison for God knows how long. So, so he's, you know, he's dying for some intellectual stimulation. What can we give him that will feed his mind in ways that we want to, so we can channel it in a different direction? Anyways, they strike upon an amazing idea. They summons two university professors who, uh, you know, who, who are studying, this would be, this, this story would have happened probably in the 30s or in the 40s, something like that, who at the time are, start, are starting to really study the universe. And they bring them into the prison and they sit, they sit them down with this Hasidic Shayid and they tell them, they tell these professors, could you explain to this Jew how much the discoveries of science, how vast the world and the universe is? and how small planet Earth is. So that the guy can get a sense of how really small and insignificant we are in the larger cosmic physical reality. And they're like, sure. So they sit this guy down and this chassid is sitting there with two open eyes, mouth open wide, ready. And they start giving him a sheer from Heint bis Morgan, from here till tomorrow. 
planet Earth is only one out of nine planets. And even all of these planets is only in the solar system. The solar system is only one of the systems in Milky Way. And Milky Way is only one galaxy in a bunch of galaxies. And, and, and all of these galaxies is only one universe out of many. And the nearest star is 800 light years away, which means, excuse me, the nearest star is uh, uh, you know, 800 years away, which means it would take a human being 800 years in a spaceship to get to the nearest star. And some of them are light light years away and light travels at 180,000 miles a second. And in fact, the light of the stars that we're seeing, some of them don't even exist anymore. It's just their light that we're seeing. The stars have since been destroyed. And to think, oh, and, 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 and here we are, one the, uh, planet Earth is like a marble, you know, in, in compared to the universe. And here you are, one human being in one country, in, in, you know, in one spot on Earth, you're more insignificant than a grain of sand. And even at least a grain of sand lasts long. A human being lives, what, what is it, 120 years? And then, you know, then we, we, we return to dust and ashes. The kids are for an hour and a half for two hours. They're explaining to this person how futile and how, and how uh, fleeting the life of one human being is. And no matter what you do, no matter what you accomplish, after we after we're gone a couple of years later we'll we'll be completely forgotten uh, you know and 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 the kids are they they make the case to him they say to him why are you wasting your time and your energy fighting against the soviet union you're so small nobody cares about you they hope by appealing to his intelligence they'll show him how small he is he'll drop his arms and stop fighting town hall anyways they make this chassidah shiit sit through this shear of a couple of hours, and the scientists, the professors explain it to him from a scientific perspective, you know, with, with all the, the most recent discoveries and, and et cetera, et cetera. And this is in the 30s. By now we have images and pictures, you know, mamish from, from you know, much, much more and much, fat, much, and much, much vaster in the universe. Anyways, the chassidah shiit, the story goes, goes back to his cell. And uh, the guards, the, the, the officers in charge of the prison, they're waiting for the next couple of days to see how this guy is going to react to this, to this shear that he's gotten. And over the next couple of days, they notice that he's got a newfound energy. It's like he's come to life in ways they've never seen before. He's enthusiastic. He's determined. He's, he's passionate. He's populated in everything he does. He's more optimistic than they've ever seen him. They're baffled, right? <laughs> How did that sheer give you encouragement? We, we're trying to break your spirit here. How did you draw energy and koyach from that? How is that even possible? But the guy's spirit ain't breaking. So after a couple of days, they sit him down and they say to him, you know, we can see that this sheer that we gave you, we tried to break your spirit. We can see it backfired on us. And instead, it has infused you and empowered you in ways that we never anticipated. But we're trying to understand why. why did, how did it have that impact on you? How through you understanding that you are the tiniest of, spec, of specs, microscopic piece of dust compared to the universe that's here today, gone tomorrow. How do you draw strength from that? He says, I'll tell you. It's true, he said. Guilty as charged. That shoe that you made me sit through gave me a new lease on life. Anytime I have a weak moment, I think about that and I'm enthused and empowered like never before. You want to know why? I'll tell you. 
He says, the Mishnah says in Masech the Sanhedrin that there's a reason why when Hashem created man, Hashem created him alone. Animals were not created alone. Bees, uh, insects, flowers, trees, uh, birds, fish, not, they, none of them was cre were created alone. Only man was created alone. For a while. Then he was joined by a woman, by his wife, Tava. But for a while, there was a moment there where he was, quote, Yechidi. And the Mishnah says something amazing. The Mishnah says, because for that moment, Almighty God wanted Odom Rishon to look around the world and say, I am the only human being in existence. That means the whole world was created for me. Couldn't be for anybody else. There isn't anybody else for the, for the world to have been created for. Surely for this moment, all of existence has been brought into reality, has been brought into existence by Hashem for me. Since all human beings are descendants of Odom and his wife, Chava, and even Chava herself comes from Odom, Rishon, this message is one which needs to be perpetuated by every other human being for all eternity. Every human being has to look around the world and say, it was worth it for Almighty God to create the entire world for me. Says the Chosted, you know, I had studied this Mishnah. I studied this passage in Talmud. I knew about of its existence. And I even tried to meditate on it and to, and to reflect and to really take deeply into myself the message that Almighty God created the world. It would have been worth it. it. It is worth it for Almighty God to create the world for me. And he did. He says, but I never had any idea how vast the universe was. I never had any idea how much actually Hashem created. But now that I sat through this year and discovered how big the world is, I mean, did you hear what they said? Planets, galaxies, universes, Milky Way. I mean, all of it. It's, it's, it's years and years. It's so vast. It's, it's, it's unfathomable to the human mind. Says the Chosid. And to think that Hashem created all of that for me, that's, that's just the most empowering and exciting thing I ever heard. Thank you so much for giving me that cheer. Anyways, that's the story. So it's typical of, you know, the way you can take an idea and, and, and what the, idea, the, the impact the idea has on you depends completely on your perspective on it. Um, but I, I, I really like the story, and I think about it often when it comes to Parshas Bamidbar, because Parshas Bamidbar, which we read this week, of course, is all about Hashem counting the Jews. And every Jew is counted as one. The Jew is counted as one, but all of existence was brought into existence for this one Jew. Okay, we're going to study today um, a commentary from the Balaturim on, on this week's Parsha, Parsha's Bamidbar, Perak Beis, Posuk Lamed Gimel. If you have a Chumash in front of you, turn to Perak Beis, Posuk. Excuse me. Perak Aleph. Posak Nun. Let's try that again. Yes. Perak Aleph. Posak Nun. Posak says, Hashem commands Moshe Rabbeinu, Va'ato anyu hafke the Salavim. Count the Levi, appoint the Levim. Al Mishkan Ho'edus Val Kol Kelov, over the Mishkan, 
and over all its utensils, over all its kalim, and everything associated with the Mishkan. The Levim are in charge of the Mishkan. Heima, they, the Levim, Yisu es mishkan shall carry the Mishkan, ves kol kalof, and all of its utensils. Behem yisharasu, and they will serve the Mishkan. Vesovim v'la Mishkan yachanu, and they shall camp, they shall be encamped around the Mishkan in what's known to us as Machan Leviyah, the encampment of the Levim, which was around the Mishkan, around the Mishkan itself. Okay, so what is the Pasuk saying? So we're dealing here, of course, as I just mentioned, with Hashem's mitzvah to Moshe and Aaron to count the Jews. The Jews were counted in Parshish Bamidbar in many different, uh, in many different ways, in many different denominations. They were counted, each, each tribe was counted individually. Um, each group of three tribes were counted individually as a group, depending on, based on where, where they camped around the Mishkan, right? There were three tribes on every side of the Mishkan. They were called the Golan flags because they camped under the flag of one out of the three tribes. Each, each, each group had a leader. Um, they, so each group was counted individually. The Jews were counted all together, right? The number 600,000 approximately comes, comes from this week's, is mentioned in this week's parasha. But the Levim were not counted. The Levim were not, were not counted, at least not counted together with the rest of the Jewish people, not in any of their countings, not in the general count, not in the, not, not, not the same. They, they were counted as an individual tribe, but their numbers were not added to the Jewish people. And even when they were counted as a tribe, the counting worked differently. The rest of the Jews were counted from 20 to 60. Shevet Levi uh, was counted alone was counted from the age of 30 days. And there is much discussion in the Parsha. Rashi gives different reasons, right? They're called Ligion Shalmelech. The Shevet Levi is called the King's Legion. Um, in other places, it says that one of the reasons the Jews were counted is because God was already foreseeing that there was going to be trouble in the desert. Bamid Barsina is going to be trouble and that there would be consequences for the Jews, all those over 20, and Shevet Levi was not going to be part of it. Um, so Shevet Levi is counted separately. In addition, in this week's parsha, to the idea or in context of Shevet Levi being counted differently, Hashem tells Moshe, who is also, of course, from Shevet Levi, to give the Levim their job. And their job was to be appointed over the actual Mishkan and all of its vessels. Um, they served it. Now, they didn't serve in it. Uh, primarily, primarily the service in the Mishkan itself was done by the Kayanim. The Kayanim, that is Aaron and his sons and grandsons for all future times. But they did camp around the Mishkan and they did service the Mishkan. What did they do? Primarily, they were in charge of putting the Mishkan together every time the Jewish people camped, taking it apart every time it was time for, it was time for them to travel, loading it up on the wagons, covering it with the appropriate coverings, transporting it to the next place, and reconstructing it when they arrived in the new place. This happened uh, at least 42 times while the Jews went uh, traveled in the desert. And every time the Levim were the ones who were in charge of this. This was, this was the, their job. They were the temple, they were the Mishkan and its utensil bearers. Again, this is articulated in the Pasuk. Appoint the Levim over the Mishkan and all of its Kalim. They would carry it and camp around uh, the Mishkan. The Levium had other jobs as well. It, it's beyond, it's not for this discussion. They had other jobs as well. Um, they would sing in the Mishkan. They would 
uh, they would also protect, they, would, they were also in charge um, of making sure Jews didn't enter into different parts of the Mishkan that they were not allowed to, allowed to enter into. And, but it, it's not, for the sake of today's shear, it's not necessary to get into that. The idea is that this was a special tribe that serviced the Mishkan, primarily involved in transporting it. Okay. Here there is a commentary of the Balaturim on the words Va'ato Hafke the Salavim. I'm going to read the Balaturim to you. It's, it's very short, um, very cryptic. And um, Be'ezus Hashem will try to discuss it. I'm only going to make one disclaimer at the beginning of today's shiur. Um, some of these shiurim kind of, while they're being prepared, they come together relatively seamlessly. You know, the, the Madrashim, the interpretations, they, they kind of jump out of the page. You know, the significance of it is, is easy to find. Sometimes it's more difficult um, to be completely transparent. This is a very, very difficult spugia uh, I got myself into here. Um, I'm davening to Hashem for Siyat HaDishmaya uh, to present it as best as, I, as, best as, as, as I possibly can. Um, I don't know that I have clarity 100% in the end on this, but uh, here are some of my very humble insights and what I think is... Um, a very raw and, and, to be honest, very painful commentary of the Balaturim. Hashem tells Moshe, you appoint the Levim. Says the Balaturim, The word Hafkeid appears only twice in all of Torah Shebechsav. Again, the word Pakoid, as we've discussed in the past with these types of commentaries of the Balaturim, the word pakoid appears in many places, pakadatia appears in many places, but he means this word in this with this specific structure, afkade, appears only twice in the entire Tarashabiklav. Once here, Hashem telling Moshe to appoint the Levim as being the Mishkan bearers, those who service the Mishkan, to camp around the Mishkan. That's one. The Idoch and another one comes from Tehillim, Kapitel Kuftes, Pasuk Vov. Afgeid alov Rosha. Appoint over him a Rosha. Bezehu Sheomru says the Balaturim. This is the meaning of the saying of the rabbis. In Odom Nase Shoiter Milamato. A person will never be appointed to be a policeman or a position of protection. Or a position of uh, a position, yeah, position of protection, milamato down here below. Elo imkain naserosha milamalo, unless they have been deemed or or been seen as a rosha in heaven. God will only allow someone to be appointed as a shoiter, as a shoiter translates to mean watchman or policeman or protection person down here. Hashem will only allow a person to be appointed to that position if they've if they've been seen or they've been declared or they become a Rosha in heaven. And that's why the Torah uses the same word. Appoint the Levim, who've become policemen to protect the Mishkan, to watch the guard, to make sure the people don't go in, to take it from one place to the other. 
And the same word appears in the Pasuk, Hafkeid Allah Russia, appoint over him a Russia, because the reason why the Levim were appointed to this position is because in heaven they were deemed to be Rishoim. Okay, that's the that's those are the words of the Balaturim. Again, if you don't believe me, you can look it up yourself. I'm reading and translating. Um, there are two before we even dissect, there are two uh incredibly obvious difficulties with this Balakurim. Um, number one, the reason why the Levim were chosen for this position is because the Levim never participate in any of the sins of Jewish history. They weren't involved in the sin of the Meraglim. They weren't involved in the sin of the Egel Azov. They weren't involved in any of the sins that the Jews were involved with in Mitzrayim because they weren't even enslaved in Mitzrayim. Um, Nothing like that. That's, to the best of my knowledge, I, I looked, according to all of the other commentaries, unanimously, the Levim were chosen because of their spiritual stature, because of their greatness, because of their holiness. I mean, this is the Shevet of Moshe and Aaron we're talking about here. That's why they're chosen. Um, it, it's incredibly difficult to understand the position of the Balaturim, that they're chosen for this position because they are Rishoyim. Milamaila, Almighty God sees them as Rishoim. Not at all clear where he gets that from, at least not when you first read it. The second most difficult thing, the second most obviously difficult thing to understand about this Balaturim is that there's no source for, for what he's quoting. He says, This is the meaning of what they said, meaning what, what Hazal, what the rabbis have said. We have no such medrash, we have no such Gomorra, not in the Babylonian Talmud, not in the Jerusalem Talmud, nothing. It is quoted in a couple of other places. It's quoted in the Rambam. The Rambam brings this down. It's quoted in other, in other, in other forum, mainly you quote it from this Palaturim. But uh, even on the Rambam, it's very difficult. Where do we, where does the Rambam get this from? I'll soon tell you. What we do have, but this the person who's appointed as a policeman down here is a is a Russia um, We have no source. We don't know of a source of such a medrash. Again, this Russian is brought down in the Rambam, so that maybe the Rambam had such a medrash or, or something like that. We don't we, we don't know of one. Those are the obvious questions. Now, when you start to analyze when you start to to dig a little bit um another one or two questions arise to the surface number one why is the balaturim referring to the levim as shoitrim shoitrim means we translate it as as um, as policemen all right that's a colloquial obviously it's a colloquial uh, uh, um, translation shoitrim in the chumash means watchmen right we had it we have it in in in, in parsha shmois there's this concept of shoytrei b'nei Yisrael, those who are appointed over, over the Jewish people. It means a position of leadership. Why is he, uses the, why is he using this expression, shoytrei? Um, the Pesach doesn't say that the Levim were shoytrei. This Pesach doesn't say that the Levim were shoytrei. It says that they were appointed over the Mishkan. He's probably referring specifically to the job of the Levim to make sure that people don't go in when they don't have to. Don't go into those areas of the Mishkan that they're not allowed to. Once again, not the issue here in the Pasuk. The issue in the Pasuk is that the Levim are being elevated to a position of leadership. 
they're being elevated to a position where they're where they're servicing and 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 um, they're, they're servicing the Mishkan. Why is he referring to them here as shaitran? And then let's let's leave, leave it as the final question for this. Um, what does he want? <laughs> what does Balturim want here? I mean, a whole Parsha celebrating Levian. They weren't counted together with everybody else. They're special. They're unique. They're God's emissaries. They're, they're, they're God's. They're the people's representatives. They're they're. It's such a beautiful concept. This this idea that there is the Levian. You know the. Which of us don't want people in our lives who are role models, people that we can respect, holy people that live around the Mishkan, that don't, they don't inherit, by the way, the Levim didn't inherit a part of Eretz Yisrael, really. Because Hashem says, uh, Hashem says to the Levim, to the Shevet Levi, I got him your inheritance. They're basically a spiritual people. We're not given the opportunity to pursue materialistic wealth like everybody else. They weren't tempted by it because it wasn't an option for them. They didn't amass, they didn't collect it. They're, they're, they're Levim. These are the people when you brought the carbon to the base of Mikdash, would stand in the back and sing and arouse people to do Teshuvah. What's the political, why is the Baal going after them like this? Hafkeid, Hafkeid, the love Russia. Their only reason why they're appointed to this position here is because in heaven they're a showing. And then we have to ask the obvious question. So what does that mean? Every person who's every person who's put in the position of leadership, of, of, of you know, every rabbi, every Rosh Yeshiva, every every uh, president, every Parnasal Atzibor is, is a Rosha. Where's the source for this? What does it mean? Why the relevance here? I mean, Shimu what's going on? Couldn't you just leave, you just leave the Pasuk simply as a beautiful Pasuk celebrating the Levim? I wish I had answers as good as these questions. But the Balaturim says it, Denise. The Balaturim is, is, wants us to, to take this seriously and to think about it. So what's going on here? Okay, a couple of a couple of introductional points. Number one, Hafgate Olov Rosha, the words that he's quoting, the other place in Chumash, in other place in Torah where it says Hafgate. Where's this from? What's the context? It's from Tehillim Kapitel Kuftes, Posak Vov. It's a very painful capital uh, in Tehillim. David Amalekh is complaining about the fact that in life he's surrounded by thieves, enemies, liars, haters. He says, they've surrounded me uh, with uh, they've surrounded me with lies. They've surrounded me with hate. I love them, they hate me in return. They do. They give me bad for my good. Hatred for my love. I'm putting love out there. They're giving me hatred. And then he seems to curse them. And he tells Almighty God, do me a favor. Appoint over him a Russia, an evil man to be in charge of him. So he can see what it's like to experience this type of abuse. Okay. Who is Olov? Afke the love Russia. 
Who's this Allah over him? David Melech has no shortage of enemies. Is he talking about Shaul Melech, who pursued him for years trying to kill him? Is he talking about uh, some of some of? Is he talking about some of his own family members? He's talking about Avshalom, his son, who rebelled against him and at one stage tried to kill him. Who's who's David Amalek talking? Who's this Allah, a point over him and a Russian evil man? The Radak says. Listen to this. The Radak says that David Amalek is referring to a man called Doyeg Hoadoimi. Doyeg Hoadoimi was the head of this Sanhedrin in the days of Shaul Amalek. Basically, for all practical purposes, the greatest halachic and Torah authority of the time. He is the person, Dovid Amalek is saying to the Rabbanish Lelem, Hafkei the law of Russia, appoint over him a Russia. Why? Well, it turns out Doyeg, although he actually, he himself never tried to lay, lay a finger on David. But Doyeg was the one who was responsible for inciting, for igniting the wrath of Shaul Amalek against David Amalek. In fact, next week is Shavuos. We're going to, Mertz Hashem, we're going to read Megillas Rus, right? Megillas Rus is written because David Amalekh is a descendant of Rus, Rus the Moabite woman. The Megillas Rus is a testament to the Kashrus of David Amalekh. Who was the one who challenged the Kashrus of David Amalekh? Doyeg Oadaimi. Doyeg told Shaul Amalekh, David Amalekh is not fit to be king, he's not fit even to marry a Jewish woman. Um, it was Doyeg. In fact, Doyeg did it, actually, according to the Gemara Nyavamas. Doyeg launched this challenge while David was slaying Goliath because Shaul Amalek had promised that whoever kills Goliath will marry his daughter. So while David goes out to victory against Goliath, David, Doyeg plants the seed of doubt in Shaul Amalek's head. And by doing so, plants the seed of seeds of hate. Doyeg is responsible, responsible eventually for the death of a many Koyhanim in a city called Noiv, the city of Koyhanim, because they helped David Amalek. And so it's him that David Amalek is referring to, according to the Radak, when David says, appoint over him a Russia. What was David hoping to achieve by that? Was it just him venting his frustration? Appoint a Russia over him. Needs to be understood. Okay. We do have a different form in our Gemara Masech to Sanhedrin. We do have a different form of this teaching. Um, of this teaching in, in our Gemara. It says something else and it means something else, but the words sound similar. In Masech Sanhedrin, the Gemara says these words, quote, quotes a Pasuk from Eiv, Vayimona mi Roshoim oiram, Hashem withholds his light from Roshoim, Uzroya Ramo Tishover and the arm of arrogant people Hashem breaks. On the word, in the words Roshoim in, in Eiv, this is in Eiv, uh, Paraklamat Ches, Hashem withholds his light from Rishoyim. The word Rishoyim is spelled Resh, Shin, Ayin, Yud, Mem. So when you write it, the Torah, the Gemara says, the word Ayin is supposed to be suspended, not at the same line as the rest of the, of the letters. It's supposed to be halfway up, halfway on top of the line, halfway in the middle of the line. Why do you suspend the Ayin halfway through the middle of the line? Says the Gemara, "Kivan shenasa odom rosh milamata, nasa rosh milamaylo." If a person becomes rosh, rosh means poor or impoverished. If a person is impoverished, lamato in this world, it means that they are impoverished in heaven. Now here, 
Again, the commentaries provide explanation. What are we talking about? Rosh Milamata says the Gemara refers to a person who is not poor financially. It refers to a person who has no friends. Person who's hated by everybody. Even Shanasa Odom Rosh Milamata says the Gemara, if you find yourself being shunned and publicly hated by everybody, Nasa Rosh Milamaila, this means that in heaven, Almighty God hates you. You become destitute above. All right? Either because, either because if you're hated by so many people, it means you're making a chilul Hashem, and Hashem is upset with a chilul Hashem, or because Hashem would le- never allow a person that he loves to, to face this type, of, uh, this type of public scorn from people. And it's a very painful experience to go through. Okay. So that's why the ayin is hanging in the middle, so that the word can be read as rush. Without the ayin, it reads rush. If you rush down here, you rush up there. If nobody likes you up here, nobody likes you up there, right? The Mishnah Pirkei says, If people like you, it means God likes you. If people don't like you, it means God doesn't like you. Uh, you know, etc. Says the Gemara, okay. Why not just remove the letter ayin altogether? Just take it out. Still leave it as Rosh. Hashem withholds from the impoverished his light, meaning if you're impoverished, if you have no friends down there, God withholds his light from you. Says the Gemara, according to one answer, hold on to your heads. Because of the honor of David. What does that mean? Again, the commentaries say, well, talk about somebody who is hated by many people, by multitudes of people. David HaMelech. I mean, David HaMelech, at one stage in his life, has the entire Jewish army, Shaul HaMelech, the first Jewish king, employs his entire army to hunt down David HaMelech and kill him. And they're all looking for him, chasing him, trying to kill him. He has the head of the Sanhedrin against him. As I mentioned before. He has them debating in the base Medrash whether he's a kosher Jew because he's a descendant of, 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 of Rusa Moyavia. At one stage, his father and his brothers believe that he's a mumser in the most literal sense, meaning they're of the opinion that, that his mother had him, conceived with him while she was married to her husband, Yishai, from a different man. Again, the details of which are not for now. Talk about a person who's getting it, who's getting faklapped from Allah Zaytan, who's getting beaten from all sides. David HaMelech, you mean to tell me that David HaMelech is Rosh Lamata, he's impoverished, he's bereft of friends because God has turned his back on him? This man became David Melech, he saw the ancestor of Melech HaMashiach, the builder of the first, the designer, architect, engineer of the first base of Mikdash, and, and from it, the second base of Mikdash. It all comes from David HaMelech. Obviously, it doesn't apply to David Amalek. Ah, says the Gemara. That's why the Torah leaves the ayin in there to tell you that we don't mean anybody who's despised by people is despised by God. We mean any Rosha who's despised by people is despised by God. But Tzadikim, Tzadikim travel their own journey. Sometimes Tzadikim face tremendous moments of ostracization, of being ostracized. And, uh, and it's not because Hashem hates them, quite the contrary. Yeah. Hashem loves them very much. They're destined to be David Melech Yisrael. 
They go through a process for whatever reason they go through it. The klal, the rule, if a person is rushed, if a person is, is, is bereft of friends in this world, they're lonely and in in, in, God has turned his back on them, so to speak, doesn't apply to everybody. Doesn't apply to tzaddik. Okay. It applies only to Rishon. Is that what the Balaturim is referring to? I don't know. Um, again, it's a different Gemara. The Gemara says, if you're a Rosh Lamata, you're Rosh Lamayla. He's quoting a, a, a Gemara, that, he's quoting a saying of the Chazal, Ein odom nasa shoiter milamata, elem ke nasa rosha milamayla. But here's at least, I'm, I'm, I'm quoting it because it's, it, it's beautiful and also because it's the closest thing we have in our Gemara to what he seems to be quoting. All right, let's go really into the, into the, heart, of, into the heart of his commentary. The Balaturim, we, we've come to the Pasuk where the Levim are appointed to the highest of places, highest of positions, short of Koyanim. And he's saying, yeah, they're short, they're, they have these positions, because in heaven, they're seen, they're seen as Rishon. What does he want? What does he mean? Well, let's start with what he doesn't mean. He doesn't mean that the Levim are spiritually bad people. Obviously not. Again, the Levim are, are chosen here because they're Tzadikim. In fact, originally it was the Bechorim, it was the firstborns who were supposed to have this job. They were rejected because they worshipped the golden calf and the Levim were chosen because the Levim didn't worship, did not worship the golden calf. Okay, so it doesn't mean that they're ashamed. So what does he mean? Does he mean, you can explain it in a few ways, perhaps. Maybe he means that the, Levi, that the Levim, and by implication, anybody who is, elevated to a position of leadership, must always remain humble. The, the Gemara says that the reason why Shaul HaMelech's kingdom did not last and Dovin HaMelech's kingdom did last, the Gemara says one of the reasons for that is because Shaul's yichas was beautiful. And Dovin HaMelech's yichas is horrible. And in order for a person to be a lasting leader over the community, they need to have, quote, a bag of dead bugs hanging over their back, meaning they need to have baggage and garbage in their background so that if they ever become arrogant, we can turn to them and say, listen, don't you get arrogant over us. You got a bag of stinking stuff hanging over your neck. Just turn around. And it'll humble them. Maybe the Balaturim means that a person in order to be elevated to a position of leadership needs to, needs to have baggage, right? Needs to have stuff. Um, so, that, so that they'll never become arrogant. One explanation. Another explanation, maybe the Balaturim is saying, you know, there's, there's this teaching of the Chazal, Ashrei Nasi Yechda, fortunate is the generation, where the leaders are honest when they sin. They admit <coughs> to their own mistakes. They're ready to offer a sacrifice for it. Um, and they're not trying to cover it up. Hashem will never allow a person to be or a person shouldn't be elevated to a position until they're Rosh Milamila, which means until they're ready to fess up, to, to honestly uh, confess and, and to be humble about their own, their own uh, you know, their own shortfalls, if and when they do, and everybody is human. And, and, and then this way they can, you know, they can they can they can fix themselves. Perhaps he means that. Perhaps he means, of course, in the beginning of Tanya, the Altar Rebbe brings that every soul before it comes into this world 
is made, is told, is, is, is administered an oath from the quotes from the Gemara Nida. It's administered an oath. Be a tzaddik and don't be a Russia. And even if the whole world tells you you're a tzaddik, you should still consider yourself Russian. You should still consider yourself like a Russian, right? All right, there's all sorts of explanations. What does that mean? But, but at least on the most simple of levels, it means that a person has to always be aware that they're not immune to the Yitzhahara. So maybe the Balaturi means that, that uh, you won't be appointed, you shouldn't be appointed this position unless you have the appropriate humi humility. Oh, could mean that. I want to take it a step further because again, I'm stuck on the idea that the Balaturim is referring to them here as Shoitrim. Shoitrim means policemen. Why are they being called policemen? Why are they called guards? Because again, as the Torah articulates also in this week's Parsha, the Levim were given the job to police which part of the Mishkan the Jews would, 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 would enter and which parts they wouldn't. So they were there telling the Jews, you can go here and you can't go there. And he says, that only goes to a person. Okay, here's my own very humble um, explanation on this. Put yourself into this position for a while, for, for, for a moment. You're being told that you're, for all practical purposes, a guard. You have to tell Jews that there are certain parts of the Mishkan of the Besimikdash that they can go into, there are certain parts that they can't. Now, play that out. Imagine you're standing there, right? You and your family and your friends, and you've been given this position, and you've been given it by Hashem through Moshe Rabbeinu, and the Jews start coming to the Mishkan and the Besamikdash. They would come at least three times a year, all of them. Now, when a Jew comes to the Mishkan, the Besamikdash, sometimes they've traveled from very far. They want to enter into the Besamikdash. And the Levim would be there to stop them and to say no. You can come till here and no more. I'll bet that they met resistance from the Jewish people. I can sort of, if I close my eyes, I can almost hear the conversation. The Jews would look at the Levim and say, one second, you're telling me that I cannot go into the Mishkan? Yeah. But the Mishkan doesn't belong to you. The Mishkan belongs to Hashem. Yes. But Hashem told me to tell you that you cannot go into the Mishkan, or at least no further than this. And you, the Levim, you can go further into the Mishkan? At times, yes. Really, the Jew would say to the lady, so you're here to tell me that you can go further into the house of God than I can. Yes. Am I not part of God's chosen nation? What happened to God considers all people equally, right? Who was it who said everybody's equal, some are more equal than others? <laughs> so there's an actual hierarchy. Yeah. And you, the lady, have been appointed to stand here by the gate and tell me, the Yisrael, that I cannot go into the base of, I cannot go further into the Mishkan base of Mikdash. Yes, I cannot go further into the house of Hashem as far as you can. Yes. Even though I, the Yisrael, traveled for days, weeks, God knows how long to get here, and you rolled out of your bed because you lived down the block. Yeah. They would meet resistance from the Jews. And they would have to tell them that this is not a simple laughing matter. They would have to tell the Jews, if you're not careful with this, 
you, the Jews, can lose your life over this. So there was probably resistance between the Levim and the rest of the Jews, who didn't like this at all. And the Levim would have to stand their ground and wrestle with the Jews to prevent them from doing this, to fulfill Hashem's mission. So they were put in the position where they could have been, and perhaps they were, hated by the Jews for this type of protective work. Now, what happens when you're put in a position where you have to take a stand that people don't like and you get resistance and you start getting pushback? What happens is that you start to wonder why it is that you've been blessed with this incredible job of having to fight with Jews. Why? Why did Hashem do this to me? So what happens is people who are in this type of position, well, they have to truly believe that this is the will of Hashem. Okay, they have to see themselves as, as servants of the community, as, 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 as fulfilling a mission which, which, which Hashem wants them to do. Yes, yes, all true. But how do you deal with the hate? How do you deal with how do you deal with the haters? David, this David Malach is crying over this. It's like Rabbanishlunni. I love the people and they're and they're they're giving me hate in return. How do you deal with this? I think the Balaturim is giving us the keenest and deepest and most profound and, and I want to add painful insights into this. Because again, we're talking here about shoitrim. These are poli policemen are not there to, to schmooze with people, right? Policemen are there to fight. Okay? What if you get tired? What if you don't want to be hated that way? He says, you're not going to be put into this position unless you're an LMK Nasser Russian Milamai. The Balaturim, I believe, is giving the Levine the solution to how to psychologically and emotionally deal with being put in the position where you have to constantly tell Jews, no, no, no. Without, them making, without making them feel that Hashem is rejecting them. So what is the solution? I'll tell you what I think it is. It's based on a great, the, the, the idea came to me based on a, also one of the most beautiful, profound uh, uh, stories in, uh, about one of the Chabad Rebbes. And the story, in short, goes that, that I believe it was the Mittler Rebbe, the second of the Chabad, of the seven Chabad Rebbes, who was what's called seeing people in Yechidus, which means he was, he was having private audiences with people, one after another after another. As, as Rebbes do, he was literally seeing people, you know, all night, all day. And you see them privately. Somebody comes in to see him, and at some point he tells the individual, I cannot continue the conversation with you. You have to leave. I'll call you back when I'm ready to continue. And wouldn't continue the conversation with him. Sends the guy out, closes the door, locks it, and becomes unavailable to his chassidim, to his family, refuses to open the door for hours. I don't even remember exactly how long it went on for. A couple days, non-responsive. From behind the door, they hear the way their Rebbe is saying to Hillam and crying. Nobody knows what's going on. The Rebbe refuses to even open the door, maybe, uh, you know, to, to take some food, to, you know, 
to reassure people that he's okay, but he won't talk to anybody. After a while, he opens the door. He calls in the person who he was in the middle of a meeting with, finishes the conversation with him, and moves on. There were other hundreds, thousands of people waiting to see him. He moves on. Now, you know how it is with every good Hasidic story. There's always one Nudnik who asks the Rebbe the question that nobody else has the guts to. And he goes, Rebbe, what happened? You were in the middle of seeing people. You stopped. You fell apart completely for a long time. Nobody could figure out what was going on. Then, all of a sudden, everything fine. You open the door, resume business as usual. What happened? Can you tell us? The person that had you, right? The person you're in the meeting with refuses to say a word. Will you tell us something? Open your hearts, my friends. The middle of said, I'll tell you. He says, people come to me with problems, all sorts of problems. People come to me and they are vulnerable. They, they expose their hearts, their souls, their blemishes, their challenges. And more than anything, they come to me with advice in spiritual matters and their own challenges in serving Hashem. He says, every person who comes to me and presents me with some challenge, with some temptation, with some, with some area in their life where they're in the grip of the Yetzirah, says the Rebbe, before I answer, before I respond to the person, I find some type of resemblance of this problem in myself. And when I do, I ask myself, how do I fix this issue within me? And once I know how to fix it within myself, based on that, I tell the person who's coming to see me, this is how you should fix it within yourself. In other words, I take that the problem doesn't exist in the same form by me, but I take it and I adapt it. What does what this person is struggling with, what does it mean to me? Once I can figure out, once I can master this issue within myself, I now feel authorized, empowered, and in a position to guide and instruct a person on how they can fix it within themselves. But I take it completely personally within, my, within myself. Everything, that per, 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 everything that's brought my way, I first internalize personally completely and then give it back to them. Says the Mithra, I'll tell you the truth. Somebody came to me and confessed to a particular sin and challenge. Again, not relevant now what it was, but, but he came to me with a particular challenge. He said it was so grotesque. It was so disgusting. It was so not human that I couldn't find any type of resemblance of this within myself. Which means I had two problems. Number one, I couldn't help him. And number two, I was absolutely aware that if Hashem had brought this person to me, that means that Hashem brought them to me to help, for me to help them, and that I couldn't help them until I located where a semblance of this issue existed within myself. And if I didn't know where it existed within myself, that means there's something about myself that I don't know, which means I'm blind to some type of personal imperfection, which means I don't know the truth about myself. I closed the door, I sent everybody out, and I said, I don't really know myself. I have to get back. I have to research within myself, my own soul, to find where is there a, a, a blemish that I'm not aware of. He said, it took me a couple of days and I found it. And I found it. And I figured out how to fix it. And once I could fix it, I was able to call the person back into my room. 
and instruct him on how to fix himself. Life moves on. That's the story. Maybe perhaps on a homiletical level, in the, the safer that I have, that I use as a, many commentary, as a commentary in the Balaturim, on the bottom over here, it says, um, it says here that, Rabu Habi'urim, Bedivrei Rabbeinu Aldera Chadrush, that many explanations have been given on these words of the Balaturim, Aldera Chadrush, in the, you know, in, in, in the way of, in, in a homiletical way. Maybe we can add my humble two pennies here. Maybe what the Balaturim is saying is guidance for the Levim. Levim, he's saying, when you instruct Jews, when you find, or, or for that matter, to anybody who finds themselves in a position of leadership, where you have to guide Jews and sometimes share with them stuff that's going to meet resistance, stuff that's going to hurt. When you do so, always look into yourself first. Always understand that there's some kind of element where you yourself are a Rosha. Find within yourself where it is that you're lacking. And then when you know, when you see this as an opportunity to grow yourself, just about anybody will take advice from you and how they should grow if they feel that you're being compassionate and you're growing in the process. If it's coming from a place of, place of humility, if, if, if I myself am working on myself to apply this to myself as I'm teaching it to you, it will never be met with resistance. The reason why sometimes we get upset when people tell us things, whether we should get upset or whether we don't, is because we feel like they're being condescending. We feel like they're telling us off, right? Ah, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you never gets anybody anywhere. What do you mean, what's wrong with you? There's something wrong with me. There's something wrong with you. And there's something wrong with everybody. What are you, lady, standing there and, and, and telling me I cannot go into the Mishkan? Who are you? Says the Palaturim to the Levi, be ready for this. And when they do, the Levi has to, turn to the, has to turn to the Jew and say, every Jew, the whole world was created for him. Every Jew has their shlichus and their mission. I know where my areas of weakness are. I know where I have access and where I don't. You should know where you have access and where you don't. You have to go where your shlichus is. I have to go where my shlichus is. I have my own limitations. And when you say it that way, course there'll be no resistance at all maybe this is the deeper meaning of david to conclude maybe this is the deeper meaning of david amalek's, of david amalek's prayer afkeda love russia david amalek sees he's being pursued david amalek sees he's he's got all of these people who are out to get him he says i understand that this is some process that i have to go through in order for me to become who i need to be but my prayer is, okay, the love Russia, let this person who's pursuing me, let him understand that he also has his own challenges and that he also has his, his own limitations and, and, and let him be open to the fact that he should be doing this from a position of humility, not from a position of arrogance. And if he still feels that it's his godly mission to pursue me, then, then let him do it. But I have a feeling, says David, Havkeda love Russia, that if he could only find his own, so to speak, internal Russia, <laughs> I'm laughing because usually we tell us, the, the, usually the message is, look for your internal tzaddik, right? Look for that which is pure and holy. And, and of course, 
It is, but 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 the Balaturim is saying together with that comes with an honest reckoning. Look for your own. When you see something in someone else, ask yourself, do I have some semblance of this within myself? If I do, do I know how to fix it? And if I can, then that's always the best way to be able to help, to be able to help somebody else. Anybody who has been put in the position of leadership has to remember two things. On the one hand, if you're a leader, then it's your job to service the people and it's not about you. You gotta be able to put your ego aside. You gotta be able to put your own agenda aside. You gotta be able to be there for them on their terms and give them what they need. For so Hashem has empowered you. That's one. And then two, there's a second thing you gotta remember, which is that every experience you have, every encounter you have is being brought to you by Hashem for you to reach greater depths within yourself. And as you grow deeper and greater within yourself, you'll empower all those around you to become greater around them. If you want to help others be bigger, if you want to help others be more humble, be more humble yourself. This, in this way, the Levim, even as they were shoytrim, even as they prevented the Jews from going into certain places in the Mishkan, would be welcomed and, will be welcomed and loved by the Jews who would truly, who would truly feel that they were all serving Hashem together. Have a wonderful Shabbos.